Chapter 16, Paragraph 2, Part B of An Introduction to the Principles of Morals and Legislation. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anna Simon. An Introduction to the Principles of Morals and Legislation by Jeremy Bentham. Chapter 16. Division of Offences. Paragraph 2. Divisions and Subdivisions. Part B. We come now to offences against trust. A trust is where there is any particular act which one party, in the exercise of some power or some right, which is conferred on him, is bound to perform for the benefit of another. Or, more fully, thus. A party is said to be invested with a trust when, being invested with a power or with a right, there is a certain behaviour which, in the exercise of that power, or of that right, he is bound to maintain for the benefit of some other party. In such case, the party first mentioned is styled a trustee. For the other party, no name has ever yet been found. For want of a name, there seems to be no other resource than to give a new and more extensive sense to the word beneficiary, or to say at length, the party to be benefited. The trustee is also said to have a trust conferred or imposed upon him, to be invested with the trust, to have had a trust given him to execute, to perform, to discharge, or to fulfil. The party to be benefited is said to have a trust established or created in his favour, and so on through a variety of other phrases. Now, it may occur that a trust is oftentimes spoken of as a species of condition, that a trust is also spoken of as a species of property, and that a condition itself is also spoken of same light. It may be thought, therefore, that in the first class the division of offences against condition should have been included under that of the offences against property, and that, at any rate, so much of the fifth class now before us as contains offences against trust should have been included under one or other of those two divisions of the first class, but upon examination it will appear that no one of these divisions could with convenience, nor even perhaps with propriety, have been included under either of the other two. It will appear at the same time that there is an intimate connection subsisting amongst them all, insomuch that of the lists of the offences to which they are respectively exposed, any one may serve in great measure as a model for any other. There are certain offences to which all trusts as such are exposed. To all these offences every sort of condition will be found exposed. At the same time, that particular species of the offences against trust will, upon their application to particular conditions, receive different particular denominations. It will appear also that, of the two groups of offences into which the list of those against trust will be found naturally to divide itself, there is one and but one, to which property, taken in its proper and more confined sense, stands exposed, and that these, in their application to the subject of property, will be found susceptible of distinct modifications, to which the usage of language and the occasion there is for distinguishing them in point of treatment make it necessary to find names. In the first place, as there are, or at least may be, as we shall see, conditions which are not trusts, so there are trusts of which the idea would not be readily and naturally understood to be included under the word condition, add to which that of those conditions which do include a trust, 
the greater number include other ingredients along with it, so that the idea of a condition, if on the one hand it stretches beyond the idea of a trust, does on the other hand fall short of it. Of the several sorts of trusts, by far the most important are those in which it is the public that stands in the relation of beneficiary. Now, these trusts, it should seem, would hardly present themselves at first view upon the mention of the word condition. At any rate, what is more material, the most important of the offences against these kinds of trust would not seem to be included under the denomination of offences against condition. The offences which by this latter appellation would be brought to view would be such only as seem to affect the interests of an individual, of him, for example, who is considered as being invested with that condition. But in offences against public trust, it is the influence they have on the interests of the public that constitutes by much the most material part of their pernicious tendency. The influence they have on the interests of any individual, the only part of their influence which would be readily brought to view by the appellation of offences against condition, is comparatively as nothing. The word trust directs the attention at once to the interests of that party for whom the person in question is trustee, which party, upon the addition of the epithet public, is immediately understood to be the body composed of the whole assemblage, or an indefinite portion of the whole assemblage of the members of the state. The idea presented by the words public trust is clear and unambiguous. It is but an obscure and ambiguous garb that that idea could be expressed in by the words public condition. It appears, therefore, that the principal part of the offences included under the denomination of offences against trust could not, commodiously at least, have been included under the head of offences against condition. It is evident enough that for the same reasons neither could they have been included under the head of offences against property. It would have appeared preposterous, and would have argued a total inattention to the leading principle of the whole work, the principle of utility, to have taken the most mischievous and alarming part of the offences to which the public stands exposed, and forced them into the list of offences against the property of an individual, of that individual to wit, who in that case would be considered as having in him the property of that public trust which by the offences in question is affected nor would it have been less improper to have included conditions, all of them, under the head of property, and thereby the whole catalogue of offences against condition under the catalogue of offences against property. True it is that there are offences against condition which, perhaps with equal propriety and without any change in their nature, might be considered in the light of offences against property. So extensive and so vague are the ideas that are wont to be annexed to both these objects. But there are other offences which, though with unquestionable propriety they might be referred to the head of offences against condition, could not, without the utmost violence done to language, be forced under the appellation of offences against property. Property, considered with respect to the proprietor, implies invariably a benefit, and nothing else. Whatever obligations or burdens may by accident stand annexed to it, yet in itself it can never be otherwise than beneficial. On the part of the proprietor it is created not by any commands that are laid on him, but by his being left free to do with such or such an article as he likes. The obligations it is created by are in every instance laid upon other people. 
On the other hand, as to conditions, there are several which are of a mixed nature, importing, as well as a burden to him who stands invested with them, as a benefit, which indeed is the case with those conditions which we hear most of under that name, and which make the greatest figure. There are even conditions which import nothing but burden, without any spark of benefit. Accordingly, when between two parties there is such a relation that one of them stands in the place of an object of property with respect to the other, the word property is applied only on one side, but the word condition is applied alike to both. It is but one of them that is said on that account to be possessed of property, but both of them are alike spoken of as being possessed of or being invested with a condition. It is the master alone that is considered as possessing a property, of which the servant, in virtue of the services he is bound to render, is the object. But the servant, not less than the master, is spoken of as possessing, or being invested with, a condition. The case is that if a man's condition is ever spoken of as constituting an article of his property, it is in the same loose and indefinite sense of the word in which almost every other offence that could be imagined might be reckoned into the list of offences against property. If the language, indeed, were in every instance in which it made use of the phrase object of property, perspicuous enough to point out under that appellation the material and really existent body, the person or the thing in which those acts terminate, by the performance of which the property is said to be enjoyed, if, in short, in the import given to the phrase object of property, it made no other use of it than the putting it to signify what is now called a corporeal object, this difficulty and this confusion would not have occurred. But the import of the phrase object of property, and in consequence the import of the word property, has been made to take a much wider range. In almost every case in which the law does anything for a man's benefit or advantage, men are apt to speak of it, on some occasion or other, as conferring on him a sort of property. At the same time, for one reason or other, it has in several cases been not practicable or not agreeable to bring to view, under the appellation of the object of his property, the thing in which the acts, by the performance of which the property is said to be enjoyed, have their termination, or the person in whom they have their commencement. Yet something which could be spoken of under that appellation was absolutely requisite. The expedient, then, has been to create, as it were, on every occasion, an ideal being, and to assign to a man this ideal being for the object of his property. And these are the sort of objects to which men of science, in taking a view of the operations of the law in this behalf, came, in process of time, to give the name of incorporeal. Now, of this incorporeal object of property, the variety is prodigious. Fictitious entities of this kind have been fabricated almost out of everything, not conditions only, that of a trustee included, but even reputation have been of the number. Even liberty has been considered in this same point of view, and though on so many occasions it is contrasted with property, yet on other occasions, being reckoned into the catalogue of possessions, it seems to have been considered as a branch of property. Some of these applications of the words property, object of property, the last for instance, are looked upon, indeed, as more figurative, and less proper than the rest. But since the truth is that where the immediate object is incorporeal, they are all of them improper, it is scarce practicable anywhere to draw the line. 
notwithstanding all this latitude, yet, among the relations in virtue of which you are said to be possessed of a condition, there is one at least which can scarcely, by the most forced construction, be said to render any other man, or any other thing, the object of your property. This is the right of persevering in a certain course of action, for instance, in the exercising of a certain trade. Now, to confer on you this right, in a certain degree at least, the law has nothing more to do than barely to abstain from forbidding you to exercise it. Were it to go farther, and, for the sake of enabling you to exercise your trade to the greater advantage, prohibit others from exercising the like, then, indeed, persons might be found who, in a certain sense, and by a construction rather forced than otherwise, might be spoken of as being the objects of your property, that is, by being made to render you that sort of negative service which consists in the forbearing to do those acts which would lessen the profits of your trade. But the ordinary right of exercising any such trade or profession, as is not the object of a monopoly, imports no such thing, and yet, by possessing this right, a man is said to possess a condition, and by forfeiting it, to forfeit his condition. After all, it will be seen that there must be cases in which, according to the usage of language, the same offence may, with more or less appearance of propriety, be referred to the head of offences against condition, or that of offences against property, indifferently. In such cases, the following rule may serve for drawing the line. Wherever, in virtue of your possessing a property, or being the object of a property possessed by another, you are characterized, according to the usage of language, by a particular name, such as master, servant, husband, wife, steward, agent, attorney, or the like, there the word condition may be employed in exclusion of the word property, and an offence in which, in virtue of your bearing such relation, you are concerned, either in the capacity of an offender, or in that of a party injured, may be referred to the head of offences against condition, and not to that of offences against property. To give an example, being bound, in the capacity of land steward to a certain person, to oversee the repairing of a certain bridge, you forbear to do so. In this case, as the services you are bound to render are of the number of those which give occasion to the party from whom they are due to be spoken of under a certain generical name, that is, that of land steward, the offence of withholding them may be referred to the class of offences against condition. But suppose that, without being engaged in that general and miscellaneous course of service, which with reference to a particular person would denominate you his land steward, you are bound, whether by usage or by contract, to render him that single sort of service which consists in the providing, by yourself or by others, for the repairing of that bridge. In this case, as there is not any such current denomination to which, in virtue of your being bound to render this service, you stand aggregated, for that of architect, mason, or the like is not here in question, the offence you commit by withholding such service cannot with propriety be referred to the class of offences against condition. It can only therefore be referred to the class of offences against property. By way of further distinction, it may be remarked that where a man, in virtue of his being bound to render, or of others being bound to render him certain services, is spoken of as possessing a condition, the assemblage of services is generally so considerable, in point of duration, as to constitute a course of considerable length, so as on a variety of occasions to come to be varied and repeated, 
and, in most cases, when the condition is not of a domestic nature, sometimes for the benefit of one person, sometimes for that of another. Services which come to be rendered to a particular person on a particular occasion, especially if they be of short duration, have seldom the effect of occasioning either party to be spoken of as being invested with a condition. The particular occasional services which one man may come, by contract or otherwise, to be bound to render to another, are innumerably various, but the number of conditions which have names may be counted and are comparatively but few. If, after all, notwithstanding the rule here given for separating conditions from articles of property, any object should present itself which should appear to be referable, with equal propriety, to either head, the inconvenience would not be material, since in such cases, as will be seen a little farther on, whichever appellation were adopted, the list of the offences to which the object stands exposed would be substantially the same. These difficulties being cleared up, we now proceed to exhibit an analytical view of the several possible offences against trust. Offences against trust may be distinguished, in the first place, into such as concern the existence of the trust in the hands of such or such a person, and such as concern the exercise of the functions that belong to it. First, then, with regard to such as relate to its existence. An offence of this description, like one of any other description, if an offence it ought to be, must, to some person or other, import a prejudice. This prejudice may be distinguished into two branches. One, that which may fall on such persons as are or should be invested with the trust. Two, that which may fall on the persons for whose sake it is or should be instituted, or on other persons at large. To begin with the former of these branches, let any trust be conceived. The consequences which it is in the nature of it to be productive of to the possessor must, in as far as they are material, be either of an advantageous or of a disadvantageous nature. In as far as they are advantageous, the trust may be considered as a benefit or privilege. In as far as they are disadvantageous, it may be considered as a burden. To consider it then upon the footing of a benefit. The trust either is of the number of those which ought by law to subsist, that is, which the legislator meant should be established, or is not. If it is, the possession, which at any time you may be deprived of, with respect to it, must at that time be either present or to come. If to come, in which case it may be regarded either as certain or as contingent, the investitive event, or event from whence your possession of it should have taken its commencement, was either an event in the production of which the will of the offender should have been instrumental, or any other event at large. In the former case, the offence may be termed wrongful non-investment of trust, in the latter case wrongful interception of trust. If at the time of the offence whereby you are deprived of it, you were already in possession of it, the offence may be styled wrongful divestment of trust. In any of these cases, the effect of the offence is either to put somebody else into the trust or not. If not, it is wrongful divestment, wrongful interception, or wrongful divestment, and nothing more. If it be, the person put in possession is either the wrongdoer himself, in which case it may be styled usurpation of trust, or some other person, in which case it may be styled wrongful investment or attribution of trust. If the trust in question is not of the number of those which ought to subsist, it depends on the manner in which one man deprives another of it, 
whether such deprivation shall or shall not be an offence, and, accordingly, whether non-investment, interception, or divestment shall or shall not be wrongful. But the putting anybody into it must at any rate be an offence, and this offence may be either usurpation or wrongful investment, as before. In the next place, to consider it upon the footing of a burden. In this point of view, if no other interests than that of the persons liable to be invested with it were considered, it is what ought not upon the principle of utility to subsist. If it ought, it can only be for the sake of the persons in whose favour it is established. If then it ought not on any account to subsist, neither non-investment, interception, nor divestment can be wrongful with relation to the persons first mentioned, whatever they may be on any other account, in respect of the manner in which they happen to be performed. For usurpation, though not likely to be committed, there is the same room as before. So likewise is there for wrongful investment, which, in as far as the trust is considered as a burden, may be styled wrongful imposition of trust. If the trust, being still of the burdensome kind, is of the number of those which ought to subsist, any offence that can be committed, with relation to the existence of it, must consist either in causing a person to be in possession of it, who ought not to be, or in causing a person not to be in possession of it, who ought to be. In the former case, it must be either usurpation or wrongful divestment as before. In the latter case, the person who is caused to be not in possession is either the wrongdoer himself or some other. If the wrongdoer himself, either at the time of the offence he was in possession of it, or he was not. If he was, it may be termed wrongful abdication of trust. If not, wrongful detractation or non-assumption. If the person whom the offence causes not to be in the trust is any other person, the offence must be either wrongful divestment, wrongful non-investment, or wrongful interception, as before. In any of which cases, to consider the trust in the light of a burden, it might also be styled wrongful exemption from trust. Lastly, with regard to the prejudice which the persons for whose benefit the trust is instituted, or any other persons whose interests may come to be affected by its existing or not existing in such or such hands, are liable to sustain. Upon examination it will appear that by every sort of offence whereby the persons who are or should be in possession of it are liable, in that respect, to sustain a prejudice, the persons now in question are also liable to sustain a prejudice. The prejudice in this case is evidently of a very different nature from what it was of in the other but the same general names will be applicable in this case as in that. If the beneficiaries, or persons whose interests are at stake upon the exercise of the trust, or any of them, are liable to sustain a prejudice, resulting from the quality of the person by whom it may be filled, such prejudice must result from the one or the other of two causes. One, from a person's having the possession of it who ought not to have it, or two, from a person's not having it who ought whether it be a benefit or burden to the possessor, is a circumstance that to this purpose makes no difference. In the first of these cases, the offences from which the prejudice takes its rise are those of usurpation of trust, wrongful attribution of trust, and wrongful imposition of trust. In the latter, wrongful non-investment of trust, wrongful interception of trust, wrongful divestment of trust, wrongful abdication of trust, and wrongful detractation of trust. 
so much for the offences which concern the existence or possession of a trust. Those which concern the exercise of the functions that belong to it may be thus conceived. You are in possession of a trust. The time, then, for your acting in it must, on any given occasion, neglecting for simplicity's sake the then present instant, be either past or yet to come. If past, your conduct on that occasion must have been either conformable to the purposes for which the trust was instituted, or unconformable. If conformable, there has been no mischief in the case. If unconformable, the fault has been either in yourself alone, or in some other person, or in both. In as far as it has lain in yourself, it has consisted either in your not doing something which you ought to do, in which case it may be styled negative breach of trust, or in your doing something which you ought not to do. If in the doing something which you ought not to do, the party to whom the prejudice has accrued is either the same for whose benefit the trust was instituted, or some other party at large. In the former of these cases, the offence may be styled positive breach of trust, in the other abuse of trust. In as far as the fault lies in another person, the offence on his part may be styled disturbance of trust. Supposing the time for your acting in the trust to be yet to come, the effect of any act which tends to render your conduct unconformable to the purposes of the trust may be either to render it actually and eventually unconformable, or to produce a chance of its being so. In the former of these cases it can do no otherwise than take one or other of the shapes that have just been mentioned. In the latter case the blame must lie either in yourself alone, or in some other person, or in both together, as before. If in another person the acts whereby he may tend to render your conduct unconformable, must be exercised either on yourself, or on other objects at large. If exercised on yourself, the influence they possess must either be such as operates immediately on your body, or such as operates immediately on your mind. In the latter case, again, the tendency of them must be to deprive you either of the knowledge, or of the power, or of the inclination, which would be necessary to your maintaining such a conduct as shall be conformable to the purposes in question. If they be such, of which the tendency is to deprive you of the inclination in question, it must be by applying to your will the force of some seducing motive. Lastly, this motive must be either of the coercive or of the alluring kind. In other words, it must present itself either in the shape of a mischief or of an advantage. Now, in none of all the cases that have been mentioned, except the last, does the offence receive any new denomination. According to the event, it is either a disturbance of trust, or an abortive attempt to be guilty of that offence. In this last it is termed bribery, and it is that particular species of it which may be termed active bribery, or bribe-giving. In this case, to consider the matter on your part, either you accept of the bribe or you do not. If not, and you do not afterwards commit, or go about to commit, either a breach or an abuse of trust, there is no offence on your part in the case. If you do accept it, whether you eventually do or do not commit the breach or the abuse which it is the bribe-giver's intention you should commit, you at any rate commit an offence which is also termed bribery, and which, for distinction's sake, may be termed passive bribery or bribe-taking. As to any farther distinctions, they will depend upon the nature of the particular sort of trust in question, and therefore belong not to the present place. And thus we have thirteen subdivisions of offences against trust, that is, 1. Wrongful non-investment of trust. 2. Wrongful interception of trust. 3. Wrongful divestment of trust. 
4. Usurpation of trust. 5. Wrongful investment or attribution of trust. 6. Wrongful abdication of trust. 7. Wrongful detractation of trust. 8. Wrongful imposition of trust. 9. Negative breach of trust. 10. Positive breach of trust. 11. Abuse of trust. 12. Disturbance of trust. 13. Bribery. From what has been said, it appears that there cannot be any other offences on the part of a trustee by which a beneficiary can receive on any particular occasion any assignable specific prejudice. One sort of acts, however, there are by which a trustee may be put in some danger of receiving a prejudice, although neither the nature of the prejudice nor the occasion on which he is in danger of receiving it should be assignable. These can be no other than such acts, whatever they may be, as dispose the trustee to be acted upon by a given bribe with greater effect than any with which he could otherwise be acted upon, or, in other words, which place him in such circumstances as have a tendency to increase the quantum of his sensibility to the action of any motive of the sort in question. Of these acts there seem to be no others that will admit of a description applicable to all places and times alike than acts of prodigality on the part of the trustee, but in acts of this nature the prejudice to the beneficiary is contingent only and unliquidated, while the prejudice to the trustee himself is certain and liquidated. If, therefore, on any occasion it should be found advisable to treat it on the footing of an offence, it will find its place more naturally in the class of self-regarding ones. As to the subdivisions of offences against trust, these are perfectly analogous to those of offences by falsehood. The trust may be private, semi-public, or public. It may concern property, person, reputation, or condition, or any two or more of those articles at a time, as will be more particularly explained in another place. Here, too, the offence, in running over the ground occupied by the three prior classes, will in some instances change its name, while in others it will not. Lastly, if it be asked what sort of relation there subsists between falsehoods on one hand and offences concerning trust on the other hand, the answer is they are altogether disparate. Falsehood is a circumstance that may enter into the composition of any sort of offence, those concerning trust as well as any other, in some as an accidental, in others as an essential instrument. Breach or abuse of trust are circumstances which, in the character of accidental concomitants, may enter into the composition of any other offences, those against falsehood included, besides those to which they respectively give name. End of Chapter 16, Paragraph 2